0: Today on IFS Talks, we are speaking with Michael Elkin. Michael Elkin is an IFS senior lead trainer who has been involved with the model since 1995. He has been a popular presenter, conducting scores of trainings and workshops throughout the US and Europe, and has taught level one trainings in Boston every year since 2003. He was a pioneer in applying hypnotic and strategic approaches to addiction treatment and has integrated those tools in IFS treatment. He is the author of Families Under the Influence and several other articles. Mike has just started co-leading an IFS level 2 on depression, anxiety and shame with Ann Cinco. He also has a private practice in marriage, family and individual therapy and is focused on training therapists in the internal family systems model, which Mike believes is the most flexible, powerful, and humane tool for healing available. Michael Elkin also specializes in high-conflict couples, phobias, somatic issues, aftermath of trauma, addiction, eating disorders, and cynicism, He has a wealth of knowledge, and we are so happy to have him here with us on IFS Talks today. Thank you, Mike.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Mike, thanks for sitting with us. We really, really appreciate it. How is it for you to hear this bio? What parts come up?
1: It's interesting. When I hear that kind of thing about me, I, I tend to dissociate a little bit because it either puffs up parts of me or embarrasses parts of me, so I just sort of drift off until it's over. It's the best and most descriptive bio though that I've had read of me, and I think here you were responsible for putting it together. So
2: Glad you enjoyed it. Mike, could you please tell us a bit more about your journey into the mental health professional? Was there something in your personal life that was determinant for you becoming a psychotherapist?
1: Well, it's very, it's odd because in the 1960s, if you had been a drug addict, you were considered to be qualified to do psychotherapy because it was in the the sort of middle to late 60s that drugs and, and, and hard drugs migrated from the neighborhood's uh, with people with unfashionable complexions, to the places where parents were organized in voting and couldn't make noise, and it was discovered that psychiatry and the sort of the whole health profession was helpless against addiction. They had no idea how to deal with it, and the only approaches that seemed to show any promise. ...were run by ex-addicts, the the 12 Steps programs, AA and A, all those, uh, which defined addiction as a disease. And therefore, the people suffering from it were not condemned as being morally deficient, Mm -hmm. but suffering from an illness... And the concept houses, which were punitive, uh, fascistic, uh, exploitative, sort of residential programs that basically took addicts in, would humiliate them, sexually exploit them, and Mm. uh, help them to understand that their only hope for existence was to stay there for the rest of their lives. Wow. Which was much more popular with the establishment because it was. Punitive, and people uh, were very, you know, would project the parts of them that were addicted, the parts of them that, that couldn't discipline themselves on, on those bad addicts, and uh, no punishment was considered to be too harsh uh-huh. for addiction. Actually, when I was a adolescent, I had sort of decided I was going to become a black jazz musician. And I did my best, given <laughs> the circumstance, whereas I had sort of limited talent in both areas. But through a series of, you know, it's a long story, but I wound up uh, going to college with a credential of having been addicted to heroin. Essentially got over it by getting addicted to martial arts instead.
3: Oh, beautiful.
1: So I wound up uh working in uh one of these concept houses. It only lasted a couple of weeks. Cause even at my very uh primitive state of development, you know, I realized that it was just a horrible place and I couldn't be part of it. But once I had been there, I had been given a, a tip to apply somewhere else and uh, started working in a residential treatment center for um, adolescents, many of them were drug-involved. And uh turned out the clinical director there thought I was a talent and encouraged me and introduced me to some mentors. And I began to be a therapist. I got trained in family therapy. I went to the Boston Family Institute for two years and I was asked to join the faculty after I uh, graduated. And mm-hmm. uh, I read a book by Jay Haley called Strategies of Psychotherapy. That one. And I realized I wasn't just a two bit pool hustler using essentially, pool room tricks on drug addicts, I was a strategic psychotherapist. And that book, it made me take myself seriously as a therapist. And also, uh, Jay Haley introduced me to the work of Milton Erickson. And I got fascinated with Erickson's work, but I still didn't take myself seriously enough to go to Phoenix and... Study studied directly with Erickson, so I studied with most of his, mostly protégés, primarily a psychologist named Joe Barber, who was very interested in pain.
2: Mike, in such a good company, so you were a family and strategic therapist, as you just described, you were already feeling close to, to Dick's work?
1: Yeah, well, what happened was, uh, I was invited to uh, speak at the place that I had done my clinical internship, the Judge Baker Guidance Center, uh, because by that time, I was teaching a lot about how alcoholic families organize around drunkenness, and I was very interested in family, and I gave uh, a talk there, and the woman who ran the family therapy training program, Kathy Weinberger, said that. Asked if I had written anything about this. And I said, you know, I had a master's thesis that I had written.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: She said, well, she had done a book at Norton. And they're looking for books on family. Mm-hmm. So uh, she'd let them know that I had it. And I thought, you know, it's one of the nice things people say.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was on a Friday. Monday, I got a call from Norton. Beautiful. And they asked me to send them what I had. And I sent them what I had. And they said, well, this isn't a book. How would you turn it in the book? I got in advance. And all of a sudden, I had a wonderful editor named Carol Houck smith uh-huh. who had also edited uh, Strategies of Psychotherapy. She had edited mm-hmm. Ellie's book that had sort of turned me around. And she was like a good mommy, because I had a writing phobia. I was very, it was very difficult for me to write. And she just played me like a harp. And, uh, and she was good at getting people who weren't writers to write. And so I wound up publishing Families Under the Influence in nineteen eighty-four and became a famous expert.
2: Beautiful. This is your book that is still in print.
1: It is still in print. Yeah, thirty-five years later. You can still it's still in print. And I I got a royalty check for like nine dollars and eighty cents sometime earlier this year. But what happened was, Rich Simon, uh, who was the editor of the Family Mm -hmm. Therapy Networker and ran the Family Therapy Networker Symposium every year, invited me to come and present. And at the presenter party, I heard somebody saying, so this guy raised his hand and said, aren't you afraid if you do therapy that way, the parents will kill the kid? And... And so I answered. I said, yeah, that's what we do with our therapy. We we try to get the parents to kill the kid. And I turned around, and it was Dick Schwartz. Oh. And I said, another smartass. And we we hit it off, and we started playing basketball together, and a, a circle developed around Rich Simon. And I was in that circle. And so Dick and I became friends, and we talked about basketball and cases and they and I sort of thought he did about what I did which is a form of strategic hypnosis and when, when I read the IFS whatever he wrote about it that was the lens I sought through so I really didn't get it mm-hmm. and it got to be a joke that we never got to present opposite each other every week we all we spoke at the big national conferences because that's how you market yourself yes. if yes. you do the circuit yeah. and it, you know it it, it we never got a chance to see each other present until 1995, 11 years later. Uh, Dick was presenting at an AFTA meeting, AFTA, American Family yes. Therapy Academy, mm-hmm. which is uh, an organization for sort of family therapy trainers. Mm-hmm. And I belonged to it, but I never presented there because it's like presenting for your competition. But he was trying to get IFS around. And he was there, and he did a demo, and when I saw the demo, I realized that he was onto something so far beyond what I knew about or what anybody I knew about knew about. Now, literally, I stopped doing what I was doing that day and started doing IFS. And I went out to Chicago to get trained, and uh, it was a weekend training where I also got a cooking lesson. It was, it was a wonderful weekend. And I came back and became the only IFS, to my knowledge, and I've said this many times and nobody's ever contradicted me, I was the only IFS therapist in the Northeast. From 95 to 99 when Ralph Cohen uh, found out about IFS and asked Dick if he would come to Central Connecticut State University and uh, run a training.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And Dick called and asked me if I would help him. And so the, the team was uh, Greg Johansson, who's a Hikomi trainer, uh, and, who now lives in Portland. Mm-hmm. Mitchie Rose, who is one of the most creative minds I've been in contact with, and I think is the inventor of unburdening.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm
1: who has also a PhD in chemistry and lives in uh, Kalamazoo, Mm -hmm. Michigan. Ralph Cohen, who was a professor there, and me, that we were the staff. And we ran eight trainings there. And I was essentially a PA. Beautiful. And one of the people who came to the training was Mona Barbera, who was the program director for something called the New England Society for the Treatment of Trauma and Dissociation. She asked Dick if he'd present, but they you know, they had an honorarium of $150 and he's hauling in from Chicago. So he didn't do it. So she asked me if I would do it. And so I found myself in McLean Hospital talking to about 150 trauma therapists about IFS. And when they saw the demo, you could see there were two things. There was a demo. You could see there was not a closed mouth in the room. <laughs> and then, you know, when I talked about the fact that with IFS, there's no real danger of abreaction. In other words, when I was trained in hypnosis, I was specifically told that in order to heal, particularly sexual trauma, the client had to re-experience the trauma. The, tra- the client had to abreact.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: which made trauma therapy no fun for the patient no. or yeah. the therapist. Yes, and with Dick's, Dick, Dick's model is. There's no ab reaction. The client is sitting there feeling compassion and curiosity, talking to a part that is carrying enormous suffering, but they're not feeling that suffering. Mm -hmm. So I gave that talk on a Friday. When I got to my office on Monday, uh, my answering machine was was full and uh, with people who either wanted to be clients at IFS, or send their
3: husbands
1: (laughs) to be clients at IFS. There was enormous interest. And I was sharing an office with a guy named Dan Brown, who used to be married to Marushka Wilson, and was the primary hypnosis trainer in Boston. Uh And uh, a sort of mover and shaker, and he decided to bring Dick Schwartz to Boston. And he did. There was enormous interest, and I did the first level one in Boston with Sue, Sue McConnell. Susan McConnell, was sort of my mentor. Mm-hmm. She already knew how to teach. I was a presenter. I wasn't a a trainer, which means I was a stand-up comedian, basically. <laughs> you know, I did. I showed people what I did, but. I didn't really know a lot about teaching other people how to do. Uh I did teach hypnosis. I don't think I was a great teacher of hypnosis. Oh, shit.
0: Mike, can you share with us um, whether you have had personal transformative experience with IFS in your own system?
1: Yeah, what happened was uh, they used to have these retreats in uh, Tulum, Mexico. Uh, Dick and Barbara Cargill ran them together. And it was a very good place to introduce your partner or spouse or something to the model. And I went with my wife, who got totally hooked, by the way, and still is. Uh, so I saw Barbara Cargill work. And the minute I saw her work, I said, there's my therapist.
2: Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> So I approached her. I asked her if she would be my therapist on the telephone, and she still is. I mean, I've been working with her, I think, seventeen years or something, and I'll be talking to her this Sunday. So i I've had I've had a couple of very good therapists. I've been I've had a lot of I've been very lucky with people in general in my life, and. It, I've had two therapists who call themselves analysts, but did a wonderful job for me. Uh And then I started working with Barb with IFS. And it was amazing to me the kind of, I mean, I had one such, you know, I used to be very cheap, for instance. And I mean, it was hard for me to buy anything that I, I thought I could get cheaper somewhere else. And I would drive you know, 15 miles to get chicken, 60 cents cheaper than <laughs> the local. That kind of thing. I mean... Love that part of you. And in one session, I removed legacy burdens. And uh, my whole approach to money and generosity changed overnight, radically.
0: I'm so curious where those legacy burdens were from.
1: They were from... Uh, the Ukraine, about four generations before uh, of ancestors I had no idea I had. Most of my legacy work hasn't been that detailed, but this one, you know, I had a very detailed contact with this man who lived in the late 19th century in the Ukraine and, you know, was being... There were programs run by Cossacks, and they buried their potatoes and all that stuff. And anyway, when I gave my burdens back to him, I, I, I had a totally different uh, approach to resources. It was a one-session thing, and and the whole thing of legacy and burdening, you know. I, I I was aware of the concept before, that can we very much I think in the early days under underestimated the importance of legacy, <laughs> and wasn't mentioned. In your level one, I bet, ten years ago, there was no uh, focus on it, even though it's incredibly important, and the likelihood that you'll get a. Dramatic clinical effect from a legacy unburdening is very high. (laughs) Like, you know, what happened to me isn't unique or not even really unusual. And also, what I have to say is I had a bias. When I was younger, I was basically a hustler. And I, I was violent and I was frightened and I was... I was a hard guy to be around.
0: Mike, did that come from trauma or family of origin? Or what? Your hustler part and your your violent part.
1: Oh, my grandfather. My father's father was a gangster. He was a Jewish mafioso. And my father ran his straight business and my grandfather was the single most unpleasant human being I've been in the presence of so far. I may meet a more unpleasant human being someday, but... And my father was totally oppressed by him, and then, you know, he flowed that energy down to me. The The worst thing that could happen in my family is you get played for sucker. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that predatory attitude was what I grew up in. So, I, because I was playing music and I thought of myself as a musician, I made, over the years, I've made hundreds playing music. So, the way I made a living essentially was I uh, hustled pool and poker, which turns out to be incredibly good training for psychotherapy.
2: Strategic psychotherapy.
1: It really is. I mean, how do you win at poker? You see what people do and you bet they'll keep doing it. And then the manipulation involved in keeping somebody playing a pool game with you because they have no chance of winning can be transferred into other disciplines. So that's that's what I did. And then I married a woman who was a seeker. And, you know, we I sort of said, she's into creepy studies. I'm into playing in pool tournaments. You know, we live in let. But she started working with something called the Course in Miracles. And after she'd been doing it about a year and a half, I realized that she had changed rather profoundly. She was much more peaceful. She was less explosive. She was, and I said, you know, what happened? And she said, it's the course. I'm very interested in anything that, you know, any uh, thought system that generates healing. Now that's why I got so interested in AA. You know, and that's what I, I wrote a bunch about that in the, mm-hmm. the book. So I started doing it with her. And I got very, I, I needed it. And I got very into it. And I i was in a seminar with Ken Wapnick, who was the editor. He was a psychologist. And he was the editor of the course. And he knew the course well. And he was the most self-led being I've ever been the presence of for any length of time. I was in a seminar with him for eleven years for therapists who used the course, and it was a lens I saw through. It. And the course uses uh, religious terms in a very different way because they're trying to deconstruct your ideas of religion and God. So they had a, they have a, a term called the Holy Spirit. And the definition of the Holy Spirit in the course is that memory of God's love in your mind, which when asked, will correct the errors of ego so when i saw dick do a demo i said this guy has figured out a way to mobilize to manifest and mobilize holy spirit without going through all the crap i went through (laughs) for at that point 13 years or something like that and i just i was blown out of the water That's still how I see self. So Dick and I disagree on the nature of self to some extent, and we've been arguing about it for pretty close to 40 years now.
0: What's your take?
1: Dick sees it as, as having agenda, actively leading as opposed to what I see it as, which is an access to reality and access to what's really true, and that's all. And so when an exile tells its story to self, it's essentially the opposite of shame. Shame is, is the experience of having your, your badness witnessed, and it's the most painful experience available to people. And then the, uh, the exile tells the story to self, And just being in the presence of self, the exile totally gets it that the way it was treated doesn't mean anything about it. A burden, in my opinion, is not just the meaning that a part has given its experience and the feelings and beliefs that proceed from it. It's the moral meaning that a part gives its experience. And moral meaning means that whatever somebody did or thought of uh means something about their worth as a human being and their quality of their character. Mm-hmm. And I believe that our most basic, basic motivator and need as humans is not physical survival. It is to feel morally intact. And that's really hard because we all know we have parts that are vicious and deceitful and mean and petty and vengeful. And what we can learn from self is that doesn't mean we're bad people. That means that parts were forced into an extreme position. And I'm writing about that now, and my son, who, by the way, just got trained in IFS by me in Austin, Texas, (laughs) he was in my training group down there and has been urging me to talk about not just the mechanics, which is what I talk about, but the metaphysics, which I'm very reluctant to talk about because when you're talking about metaphysics, you're talking about something you don't know anything about. (laughs) It's all speculation, so I'm... But the course in miracles and IFS were combined in me, and that's where my healing came from. So I, you know, I I can now, and my wife will tell you, I can go through months and months without getting triggered by anything. You know, I used to be a hair-trigger temper, as my younger son said. You were intolerable. <laughs> <laughs> that was. And that was, and he got the easiest part of it. My oldest son got more of it. So that's uh, in terms of my own healing. Uh,
2: Mike, coming back to your beautiful and rich journey before you stumbled into IFS and you met uh, Dick, how much there was of uh, integration and how how much there was of unlearning from you in this process after you stumbled into ifs
1: well you know what my first i'd say for the first 15 years i was a therapist all of my clients were referred by uh agents of social control mostly child protective services probation officers parole officers uh pre-trial diversion programs all that and so one is i developed a technology of working with people that don't want to be worked with and i actually did that's one of the things i thought about traveling around the country is essentially how to translate legal motivation into motivation for healing and uh and how to use leverage and how to use uh Tricks to get people to think a different way. And, uh, And then, of course, along with that, I was studying Ericksonian hypnosis. And Erickson said, essentially, all hypnosis depends on confusion. So I used tricks. And I thought of therapy as a competitive game between me and my client. And my job was to essentially cover all the holes they ran into until they had no alternative but to deal with the problem in front of them. That's the way I thought about it. And as my heart began to open, I began to think other things. And then I, I, I had an experience teaching pain hypnosis at UMass Medical Center. They hired me for something else, but they, they were interested because I had a topology of alcoholic families the guy who was head of medical education there was an oncologist. Uh, thought maybe I could develop a topology of cancer families. Cancer, families that were affected by cancer. And what he didn't take into account is he's the Department of Medicine. And the Department of Medicine doesn't talk to families. The Department of Social Services talks to families. And the Department of Social Services says he's not talking to any family. So they had a, I had a two-year contract. And I couldn't do what they wanted me to do. So he said, you know, we were talking and I, he said, well, why don't you teach pain hypnosis in the palliative care unit? And I spent two years doing that. So one thing it exposed me to sort of medical education, and exposed me. Uh, and And when I was teaching hypnosis, it really began to force me to understand what was actually going on rather than doing the tricks I was taught. And so I was already beginning to develop, you know, a pretty multiplicity understanding of people when I met Dick. And when I met Dick, all this, you know, when I found out about IFS, I finally realized what hypnosis was. (laughs) Which, you know, I'd been teaching it for years and I, I didn't. I also realized, at that point, that trans and all that was a necessary waste of time. And a lot of the hypnotic techniques I used were much more effective and simple and easily taught, if you thought uh, about it from an IFS perspective, like the phobia protocol which when I first wrote it the way I did it at, the, at first, was 15 pages of like, you know, anchoring and tricks in this direction. And is now three quarters of a page, which you can sit with that and phobia. Just guiding your client through a series of steps because, you know, IFS just creates possibilities out for therapists that weren't there for I don't have to be the agent of healing all I do is broker a relationship between self and troubled parts and at any moment an IFS therapist can be clear on what they're trying to do and what is making what is interfering with that and have tools for dealing with whatever's interfering with that. So I think IFS empowers therapists in a way that no other model does. And if I taught 100 people hypnosis, 25 would use it and 10 might use it well. If I teach 100 people IFS, all of them will use it and all of them will be helpful and the talented ones will be more helpful quicker with more a wider range of people
2: so this is a good example of your process of integration how IFS can inform so so much other models
1: so i i went into IFS with you know seeing it through the lens of the course in miracles and hypnosis and so it's very it was very friction free there there was very there was almost no tension between the way i thought of you know i f s has clicked into place with me, and i noticed people who have been trained hypnotically learn i f s quicker because you develop a skill set that's very useful in i f s
0: you're used to guiding people inside
1: you're guiding people inside you're you're watching very closely for changes in affect and, and, and micro expressions and you're you are you are trained to re instantly respond to feedback in a way which doesn't oppose. You know? And also you're trained to be very directive, which is why I never teach level one alone. Uh because my style if you remember uses a lot of hypnotic technology and I'm very active and very directive like dick and i are the ends of the spectrum stylistically although we're doing exactly the same thing i'll use probably 15 words for everyone he does when he's working because hypnotists just keep talking (laughs) so that's why i always want you know to have somebody else for people to model off in level one you know level two you know they know the basics and they'll you know, I'll give them what I got
0: will you share with us about your level two that you and Anne are starting to teach the what what brought brought up the topic and how it's going
1: uh, you know we both are very cognizant of how central sh- that all the stuff we work with gets generated by shame uh-huh. and that, you know, depression, anxiety are two ways the system responds to shame. And so, and got, got tired of co-teaching level one long before she stopped. Cause she kept doing it as a favor to me uh-huh. because I love teaching with her. And, uh, but finally, what happened was, when she was up to here with it, and Rena, who had been our AT for three trainings, uh-huh. sort of broke through and got very comfortable teaching. And so we all felt good that Ann could drop and, and, and Rena would take her place. But Ann and I just loved teaching together. So we were thinking about what we could do, and we came up with the depression, uh, Anxiety and Shame which was mostly designed by Ann. You know, the description of our teaching was Anne would do the play-by-play and I would do this color. And I thought that was... that was a pretty good analogy. So... it gave me a chance to also talk about the stuff that I had developed about shame and moral judgment moral meaning. Because... We have a design flaw, and the design flaw is that we give moral meaning to our experience, and we project our moral meaning onto other people's experience. And it is—it's not never useful, <laughs> but it's unavoidable.
2: And so, one of the powers of moral meaning is to shame us.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> And uh, so uh, we used that as an opportunity to basically package all the ideas that we had both developed over you know, teaching together for 10 years and uh, putting it into a level two. And we did it in Boston, and it was uh, very successful. As a matter of fact, two consultation groups grew out of that. We were planning to do one in Chicago and one in Boulder and one in Lisbon.
0: So that was your first one in Boston.
1: So, yeah, it was the only one we've done. The only one so far. We did it online. We did it as continuity circle. Yeah, we did one. We, We went out to Boulder and visited with Barb and we taped this online thing. And it was very popular. And we we got royalties for how many people took it. So it was, you know, all of a sudden I'm getting paid for work that I did before. And that was fun. Beautiful. So then we were asked to turn it into a level two and we did.
2: Do you want to say something about how, how does IFS approach to anxiety and depression and shame differs from other models? Because it really differs.
1: Well, I think, you know, first of all, depression is mostly seen as a mental illness. Sort of chemical happening that should be approached chemically. And say, 15, 20 years ago, if somebody said they were depressed or even sad and you didn't refer them to a psychiatrist for a meds evaluation, were considered to be malpractice. Anxiety is also seen largely that way as a chemical condition that is, you know, treated with diazepines. IFS sees anxiety as parts that are afraid they're bad. And when something happens in the environment, internally or externally, and they get energized, what people experience is their fear out of context. And so people are walking around being afraid all the time, by the way, anxiety attacks are almost always, you know, invariably phobic reactions to something that people aren't aware of the trigger. So you're walking along and all of a sudden it feels like your life is in clear and immediate danger and there's no you don't know what's happening. So it feels like, uh, you know, some devil dropped on you out of the sky. I've been just about a hundred percent effective in one session of curing anxiety attacks with the phobia protocol. And how do you cure anxiety attacks? You find the part that's ashamed of its feelings. You explain to it that there's no moral meaning to feelings and that the way they felt doesn't mean anything bad about them, and the phobia is gone. So anxiety is the fear that that you're bad. And it's very, very uncomfortable. So what'll happen often is parts will act to sort (laughs) of shut things down and slow things down and lower level of intensity energy. And so depression, you know, it's a polarization between parts that want to just cure the pain by anesthetizing. Mm-hmm. And anxiety uh, are the the parts that sort of want to find some way of being good. Uh with some people it swings back and forth like other polarities. You swing from one extreme to another but, you know, as you know, many polarities, uh, one, one side will dominate the other, but will be constantly motivated by the other to keep dominating. So there are people who just stay depressed, and there are people who are always anxious, and there are people who bounce back and forth between parts that are grandiose and either inflated or terrified or active, and parts that are despairing and paralyzed.
0: And you say that shame is usually behind this.
1: Shame is always behind it. There are two strategies, both very expensive and unsuccessful, for dealing with shame. Anxiety and depression. The nice thing about IFS is you don't need to explain anything. You just follow the affect in and find out who's doing it and bring self-energy to it. So IFS has the same diagnosis for every client and the same essential treatment for every client, which is you get the parts that are, caught, that are attracting attention in the presence of self and find out about them.
2: Yeah. And then you have the shame as a, an organizing principle in our inner systems, as you say, and then cinco. Yeah.
1: Right. I, it's the organizing principle of the protective system. And the thing about the protective system, uh, you know, in case you forget for a second that irony is the driving force of the universe. That's what. You know, protectors never protect. What they do, invariably, is they energize and attract that that which they are to protect against. And then they send in more troops. You know, that's what they do. In other words, when protector energy gets generated and protectors get blended and start being you, nothing good is going to happen. Uh So when you're working with couples, I just tell them, you know, when I detect protector energy, I'm going to stop you because they're well-motivated, but they have no chance of being of use to you. Uh So what we're trying to do is narrower and narrower the situations that trigger them and get them active, which means you have to heal the exiles that they're responding to, either to keep the shame of this disgraceful thing out of sight or to relieve the the shame that the firefighter feels when they see this bad part and they have to do something to deal with that acute pain And what they usually do to deal with the acute pain causes more trouble and more shame, which needs more dealing with it. And that's why, like, addictive process always escalates, because it's uh, a polarity. It's an escalating schismogenic symmetry.
0: That's a book title right there.
1: Right. I got that phrase from Jay Haley's book, because he talks about formal power theory and manipulation and all that.
0: So, Mike, you've seen a lot of evolution of, of the IFS model throughout uh, your time with it. Where do you see it going, or where would you like to see it going?
1: That's one place I don't argue with Dick. That's one place I really admire Dick's vision. He, he sees it as a paradigm for healing the world. One of the things I, is that, basically sort of judeo-christian tradition and analytic theory both have an extremely pessimistic view of what humans are you know either we are bathed in sin or uh, we are sort of a thin veneer of quasi-civilization over the seething cauldron of primitive drives and needs and and it turns out that's not what we are. What we are is compassion and curiosity, and covered over with a pretty thick veneer of fear and shame. <laughs> but when all that fear is willing to move back what's left is compassion and curiosity. so it 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 is optimistic at a level that no other paradigm I know is. And the other, you know, we're training more and more. We're training diplomats. We're training uh, media. The the more this way of understanding what people are and what we are gets spread, the more possibility it is to be optimistic about the future of humans. Because if you'll pick up the paper, you don't see much. That helps you be optimistic about the future of humans. Yeah. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And this allows... And I have parts that are in danger of cynicism. And and that's particularly true, I think, in terms of electoral politics. It's really hard for me to get interested in them. And I know I have to. You know, I mean, it's what's there. But it's it's hard. And IFS has protected me against cynicism more than... Because I was brought up to be cynical. And it's... It's such a bankrupt position, but it's so comfortable because you're always right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> totally I agree with you.
1: And the Course in Miracles has a, a, a question which goes Would you rather be right or be happy? Know that you cannot be both. And that has proved true in my experience.
2: Mike, this is a beautiful way to close you presenting IFS as a model for the mind and a new paradigm. Hoping to see you in Lisbon in 2021, in November.
1: My wife and I were planning to go to Lisbon on our honeymoon 22 years ago. We wound up in Crete, which was fun. I've never been to Lisbon, so I, I really would like to take my wife to Lisbon. Please
2: do. And so, Mike, thank you so much for having us. It was a joy to be here with you and teacher. And my best hope is that we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. And it certainly was nice to see you both again.